Yeah. Okay, I got you now. Uh, one second, one second. Yeah, okay, cool. Got you. So, Tat, all right. Before we get into what we were discussing, then tell me a bit about you. Okay, who are you? Who is Tatiana? Ah, uh -huh. so, um, hi, um, Tatiana Derevadisian. I, um, who am I? I am Armenian, born in London, raised in Cyprus. Um, I currently work for The Economist and uh, look after the World Ocean Initiative. Mm. And I um, also am the vice president and trustee of Alcionides UK, a UK registered charity and trustee and advisor of the Armenian Institute. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Apparently some people listen to podcasts and they speed the, they speed it up. But if, if they try that with you, that's not going to work very well, is it? You, <laughs> I think you, 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 you come pre-speeded, it seems. Um, I do. <laughs> that's okay that's cool in fact actually whenever i'm giving a speech i i always try to sort of mentally sound like this tat slow down and i know i talk very fast when i'm uh when i'm talking so mm -hmm. i am all right. yeah I, i'd like to hear you talk very fast when you're not talking but uh <laughs> <laughs> that's a completely different situation i think okay um yeah but one minute okay so the Economist, you, you, you've definitely maintained this line of sort of very top quality publications, it seems to me. I mean, the, the list is pretty cool, isn't it? I mean, you know, I, I've, I've had, I'd say I've, I've been very fortunate. I've managed to work for The Guardian. I've managed mm. to work for The Spectator and now mm. at The Economist. My, I, I, people laugh and say, how can you have gone to because they're, they're quite different, these publications. and But in fact, they're actually all very similar. Um, journalists, you know, people think that if you're a Guardian writer, you wouldn't ever write for the Daily Mail. Well, that's not true. Um, mm. And most, you know, I, I actually just find it really fascinating the way that people view the paper world or the media world and how different the realities of it are. Um, but it's also very insightful. Um, mm. You know, but anyway, I went left, right, and centre. So I've stayed in the centre where I belong. Okay, all right, that's where you are now, I guess. So are you are you, you, are you most comfortable then at the Economist? I, I I would say that I'm most comfortable with all its journalism. Um, I and I think that I like it. I will say though, I do, in my opinion, I think some of the best writers. Um, in you know that i've that i've encountered um right for the spectator uh, the quality of journalism is just um it's 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 incomparable i mean i love the guardian but the the work and, and the the style and the um and the thought is not always on you know up to par it depends on the writer is that because it's a daily and so therefore there, there's a lot more pressure on the uh, you know, publishing of their articles and so on Possibly. I think also, you know, with the, I mean, actually, that's probably a fair point because there's so much demand to produce as much content as possible to make sure that you're getting that the right amount of readers reading your paper daily. Um, and, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot. There's a, the, the pressures are very different. So that's possibly true. But I still think that you can maintain quality. I mean, look at the um, look at the FT mm. um, class paper. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, okay, I, I don't read the FT very very often. Actually, rarely. Yeah, I, I may click through to an article every now and then, but um, uh, yeah, I don't actually um, buy the paper. I haven't bought a paper in years. How how much has that affected the industry? I mean, because the Economist and Spectator are like what weekly magazines uh, are they not? Or am I completely wrong here? Um, so the Economist is a weekly. The Spectator is a weekly, um, and the subscriptions, interestingly, are are high like they're not then they haven't actually reduced um in in terms of numbers in fact after the you know after the elections after covid that we saw like an increase in subscriptions um and it's not i mean not just um i mean of, of course the print subscriptions are not where they used to be but they're not in you know 10 years ago when i what was it 10 years ago when i first started working in publishing Everyone was constantly saying, oh, print's going to go, print's going to go, print's going to go. Ten years later, it's not going. People like mm. my uncle who were, who were subscribers of The Economist for eons 
Um, I tried to, I remember I was in Brazil last summer and I was trying to get him to sort of use the app and, and he said to me, what are you doing? And his office was like filled with subscriptions, new scientists, economists, you know, whatever, whatever you want. He had like print subscriptions of and he liked his print and that's what he wanted. And I was trying to move him for like with time, and he just looked at me like I was weird. Mm, OK, yeah. So what I would imagine what you're saying is then if you have a quality publication, whatever your genre or sort of political affiliation, you're still going to be able to sell printed material. It seems to be the case. I think so. I, I think I, I think it really it depends on what you're offering. You've got to your product has to be um, there has to be some sort of quality. I mean, it's, it's, the thing is, right, I don't know about you, but I quite enjoy having a paper on a Saturday or a Sunday, not necessarily daily because I can't keep up with it. But on a weekend when you've got a little bit of time to yourself, you just sit, have your tea um, or drink your coffee, whatever is your whatever you like to drink and um, and just sit and just enjoy the morning or the day. Especially now that we're going back into this lockdown period, this is the time to kind of sit back and um, and not con- you're not constantly having to run after errands and do things and meet up with this person and that person. So take the time and relax. Mm, okay, all right. I, I think they're brilliant words that uh, you know people should live by. Um, take your time and relax, but uh, not always. It's- easily achievable but um yeah great advice nonetheless okay all right so armenian ethnic origin born in london and brought up in cyprus that's one hell of a combination isn't it well um not really i mean i think i know quite a lot of people that had similar sort of um backgrounds to me but maybe it's just because we were all we all sort of naturally gravitated towards each other because our backgrounds were so similar Mm. um but yeah, so I was born in I was born in in the UK. My parents at this point, well, I think I was six months. We moved to Saudi Arabia and we lived there for about two and a half years, and then we moved to Cyprus in '89. Um, uh, it was meant to be a temporary move. We were meant to move back to the UK, but everybody just kind of we all got settled in. We liked our schools. Uh, my parents liked the lifestyle, and um, we just never ended up leaving. Okay, but at some point you moved back to the UK because that's your base, I guess, of operations, isn't it? No, so I moved back because I, I mean, my dad expected, obviously, I expected to go to an English university. My dad expected me to go to an English university. And when I finished uni, I was, I spent a year trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. But I always knew I was going to stay in the UK. Going back to Cyprus was not an option for me personally, because I didn't feel that there was anything that I could do in Cyprus that was interesting. Um, And I remember a friend of mine, actually, because my sister at this point decided to move back. And I remember my friend, she said to me, you know, she said you could be a what was it she said to me? She said to me, you could be a small you could be a big fish in a small pond or you could be a small fish in a big pond. And she goes to me, and I think that you belong in a bigger pond. And I said, OK. And I, you know, I, I think I agree with her. I learned a lot having the opportunity to work in the UK. Mm, OK. All right. it's, it's a far more competitive environment. But you, I mean, you, you have the strength of character to, to thrive in that kind of competition, don't you? Because you're, you're very, I don't know, it's upwardly mobile. Has it emerged from the 80s unscathed as a term? I don't know. But you, know, you, <laughs> you, you seem to be one of those people who's always doing something. You, you never sort of sit still, do you? You know, I would honestly say that I feel very fortunate that I grew up with the parents I did because I, I, they taught me a lot. My my parents are very very active people. Uh, my father not 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 so much sociable. My mother made him sociable. Marriage made him sociable. But they. <laughs> um, I remember when I first started working in London, I used to constantly go to the gym. I'd go to the pub or whatever. And my dad, one day, he just said to me on the phone. I was like 22 or 23, and he said, "How old was I? No, I was 23 years old." And he said to me, "Darling, if all you plan to do is go to the pub." Um, the gym and work. He's like, you might as well be in Cacopetria, which is like this village up in the mountains, and work there. He's like, what's the point of living in London? And I thought, and I thought to myself, yeah, you know what, you're right, because I, I did enjoy the gym, I did enjoy this, I did enjoy that, but I was like, he's right, you know, I should just. It's not just about going to the pub and going to clubs and stuff like that. Don't get me wrong, I love all of that, but experience the city. Um, so I got myself involved in different things. 
and um, constantly just finding new things to keep myself entertained with. And I'm lucky I have a big circle of friends, so I've always got something in the diary. Yeah, and and somebody sort of chasing after you, and uh, because I guess when you have this reputation of being somebody who doesn't need uh, like weeks and weeks, I mean, I'm I need weeks of planning. If somebody says to me, you know, Zach, let's let's go out on Friday, and it's a, a Tuesday, I'm like, whoa, 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 slow down there, chappy, you know. Um, but you're somebody who I think you know, will get a call and say, and a friend will say, perhaps, okay, let's meet in 15 minutes, and if if the bus is running on time, you'll be there, perhaps, you know, that you strike me as that kind of person you know what i'm i'm more i'm more fluid like that in cyprus because it's a lot easier i just jump in a car and i and i and i can do that in england i'll say okay give me an hour i'll show up two hours late but later but you know i'll still show up okay fair <laughs> enough fair enough yeah actually that has been the case a couple of times when we've uh, you know we've met up and uh, you have shown up eventually yeah um, your brother but- loads me for this <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he'll probably listen to this. Yeah, so we have to um, we have to be very careful not to compliment him too much. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, anyway, okay, all right. So at the moment, then you're in you're in Cyprus. So how have you how long have you been there? Is this because of the the the, the festive period that you were there? Or yeah, I wanted to spend Christmas um, with family, so I I came over um, like quite a lot of my friends, and yeah. Was it hard? Was it hard leaving the UK in, in these times? I mean, did you have to do a test to get to Cyprus? What was, what was the scenario? No. So because I've got a separate passport, as soon as you um, you land, you're, you get tested. Um, if I had been a tourist coming over, I would have had to have a test done 72 hours upon um, before traveling. But in fact, because of everything that was going on in the UK, as soon as we arrived in Cyprus, everybody got tested, regardless of whether you had a test or not. Um, for precautionary reasons and then within like I think six hours of my plane arriving they, they made an announcement that from the next day all passengers had to be sent to a hotel for seven day mandatory quarantine so mm. we the the the, the ones of uh, um, all of us that arrived the day before felt very lucky because my friend was meant to fly the next day and she ended up cancelling her flight because it wouldn't it didn't make sense to spend Christmas day in quarantining no, 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 absolutely not. I have um, a, a student I work with. He he visited um, China. I think he was there back in November, and he had to spend the first two weeks um, of his trip out there in in quarantine. It is in in the room. He couldn't even walk into the corridor, um, so he had to stay in the room. And uh, yeah, I can only imagine that he really wore down that carpet because I would have. It, it it I I don't know. I find it very. In the summertime, I, when I came, I rented a I rented a place, like a one-bedroom place. I, I initially rented a cottage, but it didn't work out because um, there were um, uninvited pests all over. The, the place hadn't been lived in for ages, so I think, the, yeah, she hadn't done the proper due diligence. Anyway, I, I ended up staying in an apartment, but I was free to go out and come back, but I didn't mingle with other people. I didn't sort of do anything apart from sort of entertain myself. Um, but I think it's just it's a responsible thing to do. The UK's laws um to go into the UK, you don't need to do a test, but you do need to quarantine. And they are very strict about that. Like they do actually check up on you. Um, and you, the fine is, you know, significant enough that I think most people ad, um, adhere to it. But then you have the option of paying for a test after five days. And if it's clear, then you can be let out into the world but i don't necessarily i don't i mean i as far as i know seven days is is the um is the acceptable um, amount of time that you need to be quarantined before you can do a second test i'm not sure where the five days comes from but in any case um the rules depend wherever in depending on what country you you're um, going to the rules are very different okay so are you saying now that re-entering the UK they have become stricter because I mean they didn't quarantine anybody for ages so they have a corridor list of countries that uh, of people going um, back and forth that don't need to quarantine so if you go to the UAE for example and you come back to the UK you don't need to quarantine Um, there's certain islands of Greece where you don't need to quarantine for or certain other countries Um, Cyprus was on the corridor list. It was removed because we had we ended up getting a high percentage of um, COVID cases per capita, 
And mm. given our small population, it was actually quite high. So they took us off the corridor list, which means that Cyprus now is on the quarantine list, um, required quarantine list. But they've always had a quarantine list of countries. Um, I just think that in the beginning, it wasn't so... Um, they weren't so vigilant and, and regimented about it, but now they are far more, um, they're, they're, they're basically monitoring it much more closely. So you might, if you walk out of your house, which you're not allowed to do, um, <laughs> they pick up on it. Um, they will call you on your mobile and say, send me a photo of whatever um, in your house. And you have to do it right there and then. You don't, you get fined. Well, they ask you to send them a photo of something in your home to prove that you're there. Yeah. Wow. And if you don't do it within like a certain amount of time, like, you know, like 30, 40 seconds or whatever, you get fined. Good. All right. I'd, I'd get all butterfingered, I think, with all that kind of pressure. If you've got 30, 40 seconds to send a photo, I'd send a selfie. Uh, I'm in my house. <laughs> Does that you know, count? I, I think I think that this is also why people are so... You know, like all this anti-COVID move or anti-lockdown movement, shall I say, mm. is people feel like they don't they don't understand that the, the governments governments do not want to have to do this. Like I cannot, I I don't know civil servants or government employees or ministers that can be bothered with any of this, right? They, most of them would much rather just be chilling somewhere, drinking whiskey or doing you know hanging out, doing something else, far more interesting. But it's got to be done because you've got to, you know, this is a really serious situation. People don't, people don't really get it, which is fine, but they're not trying to monitor you for, um, because they want to control you. They're just trying to control the the virus. And this is the only way to control it. This is the only way that we know how to control it. Now that we have a vaccine, things will get better, but until there's a, there's a, you know, full on rollout of vaccinations, this is what needs to be done, whether we like it or not. It's not an infringement on our rights at the end of the day. Like, you know, Jesus, we're not asking people to do something too horrid. You're in your homes. Yeah, unfortunately, for some people, that in itself is quite horrid. But uh, I'm with you on this, absolutely. And uh, I I was also with the, uh, I think, the SAGE advisors back in uh, September when they were saying, look, you know, we need to do a circuit breaker, um, you know, hardcore lockdown for two or three weeks. Um, and yeah, sort of kill it dead. Um, and yeah, unfortunately, you know, government advice was uh, somewhat different from, you know, different sectors for different reasons. Um, and they went with that. And yeah, it, we, here we are. Yeah. It's, it, you know, in fact, actually, and, and this is again, like where every country, so, you know, it's interesting, the, the world worked together to develop vaccinations. And there was a lot of money that was put in to kind of collectively try and bring the research, like push the speed up the research process. And yet when it comes to like a uniform policy on um, on these rules or, or what needs to be done, it's just every country for itself. And so, you know, Cyprus follows very, very much the health experts advice. Um, the 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 UK doesn't doesn't. The U.S. for the most part does. Um, I think Germany, actually, you probably know more about Germany. I think Germany, it does follow the health experts advice. I think if it were down solely to Mrs. Merkel, uh, Germany would have followed the advice far more closely and far more stringently. Um, I think she was um, in a way uh, under pressure from her party uh, to open things up a bit. I think she would have preferred. But I mean, this is without knowing you know, in detail, any kind of governmental, intergovernmental deliberation. She just strikes me as a person who would take the more responsible measure. Um, other people would not have done so. And therefore, Germany is also now, you know, in the lockdown stage and it could be extended beyond beyond January. So, um, yeah, it's unfortunate, really. The USA, OK, the USA is, is a is a is a world unto itself i think maybe we can talk about that um for a number of different (laughs) topics later on yeah when we get to that stage um but okay all right so you are now you're now in cyprus um yeah as we've established you're you're very much uh, a sort of socialite you you do like to go out and and so on so um what's the secret tatiana because you seem quite relaxed and quite happy whereas other people would be tearing their hair out if they had yeah, like, yeah, so. 
Unfortunately, um, I, I inherited my father's hair, so I have a lot of it, um, <laughs> <laughs> which is quite unfortunate for an Armenian girl. But um, I, um, I, you know what? I've never. I, what's, how do I say? I don't mind. I don't mind this. I don't mind this period. In fact, I've been like you, my my old boss used to laugh that I used to burn both ends of the candle. Um, I'm constantly going at like 100 miles per hour, whatever you want to call it. But um, it's nice. I, I still I still am going at that pace. I don't know. Like for me, I've been very, very busy. And I don't know, like people managed to watch box sets of X, Y, Z. And I was like, right, where did you find the time to do this? Because I didn't have time to do this. I didn't have time to read um, most of lockdown. I, I found myself only being able to read when I was on holiday. So when I came to Cyprus in the summertime, I managed to get through a few books, which I really enjoyed. And then when I was, uh, I got back, I thought, right, I'm going to continue this, but I just didn't have the time. So I do keep myself, I've got Zoom, which keeps me busy with my friends, um, I, a lot of work. Um, you know, the, the charities needed a lot of support this year because with lockdown, it meant that there wasn't, you weren't able to fundraise as we would have anticipated. Um, Alkionides had a, had planned a massive fundraiser for October time, which we had to postpone. We've postponed it till next, this year now. Hopefully we'll be able to run it. Um, you know, and it was, gonna, it was going to sort of generate a huge amount of income. So we just had to get creative and, but then we also used it as a time to plan and do strategy work. So we developed this proposal because we're trying to buy a property. Um, and we spent time with a working committee trying to develop that. So there was, you know, there was a lot of stuff that went on last year that kept me entertained. And I wasn't sort of, you know, too upset about the fact that I wasn't able to go out, you know, all the time. And anyway, in fact, it's actually quite nice to drink wine on your own, <laughs> zooming with your girls and just, uh, yeah, new age stuff. As, as always, flying in the face of custom. Yeah, that's fair enough. That's Tatiana, I guess. Um, all right. A, a very interesting sort of side question on this, because I think it's a topic. It's a topic which I, um, I I'm, I'm deeply um, I, I would say passionate about, uh, which is uh, gender inequality, because yeah? I think um, uh, the only way that uh, sort of humanity will ever reach its sort of true potential is when you have both. Um, I can say both genders, all of the genders, of course. But in this case, I would say uh, both genders, at least, um, you know, sort of level pegging with regards to their equality and obviously all of the um, um, the, the diverse genders that we um, that we have uh, should also uh, experience this level of equality. Um, but you have worked in very competitive environments, perhaps traditionally male environments. Um, you continue to do so and you continue to thrive. Um, yeah, how do you do it? Um, I don't, so I've never, um, hmm. I am aware of the inequalities that exist in the workplace, but I have never allowed it to rule me. And again, I go back to, I, I, I can't stress enough, like, again, how fortunate I feel that I had, um, that I grew up with my parents, that I had the kind of uncle that I did, because none of them ever made me feel like I could, I couldn't do what I wanted to do or that my gender was going to be a hindrance to me. And so the way I operate is I don't like, you know, I, I remember when I got my first promotion and I told my dad about it and he was like, great, how much are they offering you? And I said, well, this much. And he said, right, go back and ask for more. And I said, oh no, no, no. And he said, no, no, no. He's like, you go back and you ask for more. He's like, all they can do is say no. And I was like, right. And I, and I think I was 24 at the time. So I did that. And, you know, and then I started like learning that you've got to demand for things. You've got to ask for things. And, and this is something that I'm always um, I'm, I'm always trying to encourage all my girlfriends and friends to do this when they get a, when they're offered a, from a contract role to a full time role or something comes up or there's a job opportunity and they're negotiating their contract. You know, I'm I'm constantly reminding them that you've got to ask for these things because they're not going to ask you for it. Um, I've been in situations where I found out that a male colleague was earning more money than me. Um, you do see this. You, you do find men that you work with that they can be quite blasé or arrogant towards you or condescending. But I'm quite um, I'm diplomatic, but I will make 
I will make it, you aware that I'm not going to put up with that. Um, you know, I may be a little bit sarky or I may, it's not passive aggressive. I wouldn't say I don't like being passive aggressive. I think that that's actually quite, um, it creates a negative atmosphere in the workplace, but you do have to be assertive and you do need to put your foot down because people will always walk all over you. But the other thing is that it's really important is, um, Make yourself visible, make yourself seen, and don't let other people take credit for your work. Make sure that you're, you know, something that women do, or and I do it as well sometimes. Is I'm not, I'm, I don't, I don't feel the need like men do. Not all men, of course, but a lot of men in the workplace like to boast, take credit, hype themselves up, for want of a better word. Um, and say X, Y, Z. And women don't necessarily do that. I don't personally do that. I don't feel the need for people to know everything that I'm doing or, you know, this and that and the other, because I'm, 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 I'm content in my own knowledge about what I've done and what I haven't done. But I keep reminding myself all the time that you do sometimes need to do that because um, it's the difference between you getting that promotion and not getting that promotion. And the other guy, mostly the guy, is going to very happily take credit for your work if you don't do it. So sometimes you've got to be as brash or as bold. Um, I don't know. Yeah, it's. I mean, I I would completely believe that you would stand up, you know, sort of face to get front up to somebody and say, "Listen, you know, that I did that. Yeah, you know, don't take it from me." As in, 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 in uh, without being emotional about it as well. Um, just straightforward. I did that. You know, don't mess around. There's, there's no point in being emotional about things. And, and and I'm actually no, I take that back. There's no there's nothing wrong with being emotional. In fact, that's one of the biggest myths in um, in the workplace where, you know, your women are emotional and this and that and the other. But in fact, it shows a level of humanity and people end up um, re- being able to relate to you. But when you're arguing a point, just like in, you know, when you're debating anything, don't get don't get emotional to the point where it goes it gets personal. You can be passionate about something, but you don't have to be. It doesn't have to get personal. Um, I don't know how to explain that. It's a very difficult thing to balance out. But um, yeah, it, you know. And by the way, it's okay to cry in the workplace as well. I know a lot of people that have cried in the workplace, and no one will ever ever no good leader will judge you for that. Um, there are uh, people deal with a lot of pressures and people should be able to sometimes express themselves in a heat, in a heightened situation freely. Okay. I mean, look, this is a topic which um, I'd I'd like to sort of revisit on on future occasions with you. Perhaps we could sort of get into a bit more detail because I think you've got a lot of very good advice to offer people, perhaps uh, younger sort of ladies who are sort of looking to venture forward in in their careers. And um, I I think there would be a lot of benefit to, to hearing that from somebody like you rather than from somebody like me. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, unfortunately, that's the way it is. Um, but okay, all right. So you've you've mentioned um, you know, some of the, the the work that you've done with the, the publishing companies, uh, the Economist, and so on. Um, but you also mentioned a project that you're working on with regards to sustainability. Um, so if we go through these things sort of one by one, this you told me about this a few years ago. I think that you were venturing out to you know in, into doing this project. Um, what's it about? Uh, so I think you're referring to, so at, at The Economist, I work, I work on a project called the World Ocean Initiative, which is yep. all about how to create a sustainable ocean economy. Previous, prior to that, when I was at The Guardian, I was doing work around the general sustainable development goals. And um, there we launched a couple of uh, branded uh, partnerships where we focused on key issues around the SDGs, so financial inclusion, um, women and girls, um a, a broader to sort of take on what was going on through the SDGs like the goals and the progress of it uh, we did stuff on water on energy and so on so I think the one that I was really um, proud of and I really enjoyed was the women and girls project because I'm you know going back to what you were talking about I'm very I truly believe that um the the world is a better place when there's far more female representation 
and not just white women. I'm talking about, you know, a, a, a representation of like the 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 different dy- demographics um, of women. So old, young, mothers um, without children, um, black, white, Asian, Chinese, whatever, you name it. I think that that is how you get the most out of productivity and um, creativity um, within an organization. Absolutely. Okay. All right. So, um, and and this the the World Ocean Initiative is that the the title that you gave that you're no. working no that you're working on now. What is it? What's it called? Uh, the World Ocean Initiative. No, I was hired. Um, so they launched it in 2018, and I was hired to kind of take on this hybrid role within the business. So they had the event, but they wanted somebody to come and develop the project commercially. Um, across the event and the content side. So they created a new site. Um, I kind of came in thinking that it was pretty much set up um, and within a few months realized that mm, it had been set up, but not much strategy or thought had been put into its development. So I um, I started sort of, you know, I, I waited a while just to kind of get a feel and a sense of things. And, and you know, again, this is something I find really funny. A lot of the times when people go into a company, they go in with full of ideas and there's nothing wrong with that, but they don't take the time to understand the business before they throw in their ideas. And last year when I was doing my um, my leadership program, um, at not last year, sorry, 2019 now, um, mm-hmm. at HKS, one of the funny things that we were talking about was like this, this need for consultants, for example, to come in with a toolkit and, you know, just kind of fixing things without understanding the issues, but saying, oh, OK, well, you're not, you know, the businesses are making amount this much enough money. So we're just going to do the slap this on and it'll fix the problem. And it doesn't. And a year later, somebody else comes in and says, oh, well, we've got to revisit this and we strategize or whatever, you know. So um, it's about um, I spent like, I think, six months just kind of getting a feel for things. And then we started trying to, you know work towards developing um, a new strategy, what that would look like. Um, and we are where we are now. So we've got a guy who um, does proper editorial work, so journalism work, um, and he looks after the editorial front of it. Um, yeah, so it's 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 um, it's done really well. Um, it's it's a it's a work in progress, I'd say. Okay. All right. Okay. And and some some of the the work that you are looking to in, engage with uh, through the project uh, is there something you can sort of tell us about or so um, so yeah we've done we've done some interesting papers uh, so we we recently published something with um, one of the national labs of the U.S. Department of Energy on the future of blue energy so blue energy is an emerging um, uh, industry where, um, you know, there's a lot of revenue, like money potential in this space, but at the moment it's underinvested. Um, and in fact, it's a much, you know, we've, we've got to really think about alternative energy sources because oil and gas is just, a, it's, it's an ancient, it's a dying industry. Um, we also need to untie the, and you will know this as an Armenian, given what happened in, um, in Armenia recently, you know, the, the the links between oil and gas and um, and and politics is very very strong and in order to break that um, that sort of I'd say what's the word um, uh, political hold over you know over decision making and 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 democracy you've got to sort of start diversifying that industry and. The oil and gas industry has had a hold on on society for a very very long time, and diversifying it will help break that break that up. So you know, from offshore winds to potentially you know tidal wave energy to um, um, to thermal energy, all sorts of different things that um, out, exist out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, so that was a recent paper that we published, and it was really looking at quantifying the value of the blue energy um, market. And um, we we did a paper, we published um, an index on Coastal Governance Index. Um, and there's been other things that we've done, like in the blue economy, 
which is a sort of a more talking about what the actual blue economy is. So this is obviously a concept which um, it looks at what what in, you know when you talk about the blue economy, it's what what exists in what industries exist in this um, in this actual economy. So it's shipping, it's um, it's energy, it's tourism, um, fisheries, aquaculture, all sorts of different things, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, yeah, um, it's a fascinating subject, and uh, I completely agree with you with regards to this um, sort of duopoly um, in effect that politics and the oil industry has has managed to maintain perhaps for over 150, maybe even 200 years. You know, depending on exactly where, you know, what point you go back to. Um, that that is very difficult to overcome with in in the current economic climate. Um, uh, even though with um, the, the the elections in in the USA in November, uh, which have perhaps um, you know replaced um, Trump, who was very much pro oil and 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 gas, um, with Joe Biden, who seems to be somebody who would wants to go down um, the the you know the, the climate change route, which was negotiated in Paris, I think it was 2015. Um, so you know this seems to you know, position the the U.S. Uh, government coming with the next U.S. government uh, in a place where they want to pursue these investments that you that you maintain. So, uh, are you hopeful that a Biden government will present a boon um, to this um, sector? Yes, I mean, look, you know, behind the scenes, behind all the Trump noise that goes on, there's a lot that's been going on. I mean, um, the East Coast of America has invested heavily in offshore winds. And in fact, Orsted just a couple of six months ago, maybe a year ago, made a massive investment in setting up ports. So um, Trump, I think Biden will will sort of try and pick up the, the Obama legacy I think, though, that he is working in a different reality now to where Obama sort of left. And if I, you know, from what some people are saying is that he will push forward the climate change agenda, but with caution. The The thing about the thing about uh, Trump is that, you know, it's not as if, in fact, it's funny because the oil and gas industry or the major um, oil companies are actually quite open to um, diversifying and developing new um, new alternative sources of energy. Like people, they, they know that that is the future. They're not in denial about this. Um, when Shell had their solar energy um, uh, division, it was way ahead of its time, but also it was unprofitable. So they had to, um, they had to roll that out. They had to sort of um, sell that off. But now, you know, Shell is trying to move back into that world. BP made a massive announcement about their sustainability ambitions for the future. Um, so, in fact, I think where where Trump was going wrong was that he was looking at it from a um, this is an industry that is successful. We've got to protect jobs. We've got to, you know, we've got to protect what exists. But what he's not thinking about is what the future is going to look like. And if you don't start skilling up people, if you don't start um helping society move forward other countries will and they will do better than you and then that will impact your economy so biden will move forward i don't know how fast or how um how much of the obama work here will follow up on but he will he will be good for the us i mean he's already said he wants to get back into uh, he wants to um get the us back into the paris agreement so you know, these are positive signs, whether or not he's able to do these, um, which I think he will be because he's got the vote. He's got this. He's got the power to do it. Mm. Um, now he does. Yeah. yeah. OK. And, and how much of a big of a player is the European Union um, in this field? Um, it, I, I always look at I'm very much pro-European. So uh, I always look at the European Union as this sort of bastion um, of defense for you know, the um, the sort of forward-thinking lobby who you know look to the future, want to protect the you know, data privacy, for example. They were almost pioneers um, with regards to the legislation that um, was applied there. Um, there are many other factors, of course, but I mean, in this field, um, is the European Union as proactive as it could be? Yeah, I mean, the 
I, you know, the, uh, for all the faults of the European Union, its bureaucracy and all of that, in fact, it's actually one of the most, um, the innovation that's going on within the European Union is just astounding. I mean, I can't even keep up with it. Um, I'm always hearing or reading about new things. But in terms of the blue economy, the, there's a lot of work that's being done around it. There's a lot of economies country economies within the EU that are leading in this space, for example, Portugal, which is a country that um, we are actually going to be working with over the next four years. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, you know, the what they're doing to protect illegal fishing, um, to, um, you know, helping the aquaculture industry grow, um, thinking about how to feed for the future, for example, the energy sector, um, shipping, they and it's the countries within it also they have the ambitions um they want to sort of improve and become more sustainable like sustainability is you know top of uh, front of mind for the for many european nation states some not so much because it's they they feel like a lot of people feel like it's going to impact um it's going to it's going to add costs it doesn't really it just means that you know it's a bit like when you're how to explain this? So when you know when you bring a plumber in, uh, your boiler's not working, and your guy says to you, "Look, you need to change your boiler," but you say, "No, no, 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 I don't want to spend that ten thousand. So over the next like, I don't know, two three years, you spend almost ten thousand pounds repairing it, and by that point, then you realize that you you still need to change the boiler because it's it's still not working properly. So you would have spent ten thousand, but you ended up spending twenty. Okay, fair enough. So that's that's basically where we are. Okay. All right. Um, going back a little bit to, you know, sort of you know, the, the person that you are, your early experiences, because it, when I, um, you know, I was heavily involved with the Armenian community, a completely different corner to you, of course, um, because I only met you a few years ago. Um, but, you know, I, I sometimes look back at uh, my levels of activity and, you know, I say, OK, I gave a lot to, you know, to the, the community and, um, I dedicated a lot of time there and so on. Um, but I do look back and think I learned a lot. So, you know, by working with people, I learned about people. Um, and when I go to the, the, the companies where I work at now and the people that I work with now, um, when they tell me about difficulties, office politics, um, management and structural issues, and all of the topics that people bring up so often, I think back to myself, oh, you know what? I had the same issue with boss, you know, or with Haripsime, you know, and I, I, I don't tell them these names because they, they, they'd be completely lost. But, uh, you know, I feel that I've I was actually educated in sort of, you know, management and uh, structural communication uh, you know, topics from a very early age. Um, do you feel that you have also gained these kinds of uh, sort of, you know, softer skills, as it were, from from the community? <laughs> so, you know what, it's funny, I, I, I'll be very honest with you, when I was growing up, I wasn't so heavily engaged with the Armenian community, um, mainly because my father had experienced similar things that you had experienced. And I kind of, I kept away. I had my, I had a, a handful of very good Armenian friends. Um, I did in the beginning, like my dad, you know, encouraged me to go to go to the campings, go go to this, go to that, and stuff like that. But I, I very much had my my friends who weren't really Armenian. They were Cypriots. They were from South Africa. They were from here. They were from there. Like they, they were from all over the world, and it helped me keep them a little bit at bay. But also, I, one thing I always, so it's a little bit of a different experience. I saw and I could see it, like you know, with my parents, I'd always be hearing the stories or. Um, the, the these guys these group did this this group did that or whatever and so I would always hear it and it always made me sort of turn me off um so even though I didn't live through it necessarily I saw it I heard about it and it just made me just pull back from all of that so even like now today in the office like when people start getting involved in the politics I don't really get myself too engaged in it I'm like there I'm listening I'm I'm a someone that people can talk to, but I am not going to get myself heavily invested and, you know, trying to sort of just be that person that, you know, sitting there with opinions and talking and talking and talking and getting myself embroiled in a situation that at some point you're not going to be able to get out of. Okay, fair enough. Um, 
but do you feel that the, the conversations that perhaps you had, the lessons that you learned, therefore, have really helped you in focusing where you actually do want to go? So you, you didn't want to get involved in the politics, but you used that as a means of sort of eliminating, filtering out the things that are perhaps not so fruitful and really sort of targeting the things that you think you can actually make a big difference in. Yeah, yeah, I think I, I think so. I mean, you know, there's politics and there's politics. There's good politics and then there's, you know, this this pointless stuff, which is the office stuff or, you know, community rivalries and, and um, this and that and the other and so on. And then there's politics. And I would argue, like, you know, where do you want to spend your energy? Like, where, do you want to be effective or do you not? I mean, the, the problem is that a lot of the times it's it's um, when you're unhappy, you let the little things annoy you and you forget the bigger picture. And you know what? Everybody is guilty of this. I am so guilty of this. Sometimes, you know, I, I get annoyed. I, I'd sort of moan to my 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 friend, and she'd say, "Tat," and and I, you know, and this is where you need really good friends to remind you, or you know, a partner or parents or whoever they are. But um, why are you wasting your time on this? Like, is this really like? Think about where you really want to put your energy. Like, is this where you want to focus your energies on? Because also that energy comes back to you and it's like negative energy that then impacts you and it impacts the way that you make decisions it impacts so much about like and you don't even realize it but once your head gets clouded with things like this you're not able to think properly that at least that's my that's how I feel like I, I remember I got involved in this Armenian like I was asked to join an Armenian organization I joined I was really happy to do it because it's an organization that I truly believe in. But the people that were elected with me into the committee, they, their agenda was so different to mine. I was there because I wanted to help and I wanted to um, support the organization. They were there because they wanted the position. They wanted this. They wanted that. And so when everybody started arguing, I was like, God, I didn't sign up for this. Like, I'm not getting paid for this either. Um and in the end, I realized it was negatively affecting my my uh, my mood. Um, and I just one day I said, look, I resign. I was like, I, you know, I, I like I can't even be bothered. Like in the beginning, I was, you know, it was us against them. There was like a group of us versus the others. But I thought, oh, my God, who can be bothered with all of this? Like no one's paying us to do this. You know, if somebody wants this so badly, if this is what their life is, if this is how their life is defined, let them have it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, OK, so but, but you are involved quite a bit in in certain specific issues. So you said to me uh, and I also we talked uh, a few years ago about bringing um, a certain program. I think it was about Harant uh, Dink to Berlin. Unfortunately, that didn't work out. Um, but that has, you are you remain undeterred and you are working on um, an event or a project at the moment, are you not, for in commemoration of uh, Herant Dink's yes. life? Yeah. So in fact, the organisation Armingen Institute, um, I I joined it. I um, I had I'd, I'd been to some of their events or whatever, but I remember I was hosting at the Cyprus High Commission an event for El Kionidis, and it was for a um, a Cypriot. British Cypriot author who'd written a book about um, the arming in genocide. So, um, you know, the, the Cypriot High Commissioner at the time was very excited to sort of host this event. So we put something on together and then I invited a few people um, that the author had been inspired by. And um, Susan Patty came and Nuritza Matosian came and um, some other, and there was actually quite a few Armenians in, in the room. Um, Nuritz is an old friend of my dad's, but I didn't personally know her very well. And Susan as well, um, her husband was friends with my dad. But again, I didn't really know her because I wasn't so engaged in the community. I wasn't so involved. Uh, but then it was after that event that I was approached by Nuritz to, um, to, to, to attend the Armenian Institutes. And when I went to their meetings, I just really liked it. There isn't, we don't have the organization, there, this politics doesn't exist. Um, it's very much a, um, it's a very community driven organization. And it's them who have, you know, through people like Nuritza who knew her aunt Dink, she has been running this commemoration event um, for many, many years. In fact, it's really weird because she, she um, he came over in 2005, he gave a talk, Nuritza filmed it. Um, I wrote about him when I was at university, you know, just after the year that he died. So it all feels like 
like the whole thing just feels very connected. But I got involved since I've been involved with the Armenian Institute. I've been supporting and helping um, bring this event to life. Last year, um, we brought a friend of mine over who works with the Hadant Dink Foundation, um, Nayat Karakos, and she came and she spoke about the work that the foundation was doing. It was a beautiful event. It was a beautiful way to remember him. And this year we're going to be um, we're going to be looking at um, you know the legacy that he's leaving behind and and the people that he his friends and the people that have inspired him so people like Osman Kavala who are struggling in their own with their own fight um, personal fight um, for freedom so you know it, 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 we we hope that it will be an exciting event um, that people will enjoy there'll be music there'll be um, There'll be readings, there'll be talks. Um, so it's on the 19th of January, and um, you can find it by visiting the Armenian Institute website. Okay, right, so, and it's going to be available online, is it, for those who who, who are not, uh, well, I, I don't know, are you uh, allowed to have uh, sort of present events where you can actually attend physically? No, it's online, is it? It's all online. It will be it will be online and there will be a, um, a video on YouTube after the event in case people want to, in case people aren't able to attend on the day. Okay. All right. Yeah, that's uh, that's cool. All right. Maybe, maybe then, can you give us the, um, can you tell us the URL? Do you know the Army Institute or? Yes, it is armyinstitute.org.uk. But let me just double check. Yeah, I was right. Armyinstitute.org.uk. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I didn't mean to put you on the spot there, but uh, yeah, fair enough. Okay. All right. So um, one other topic, because like I said, I don't want to talk about everything with you. We've we sort of brushed over lots of really uh, important things. Um, but uh, I, I'd like to be able to come back and, and, and revisit them when you are free to do so, of course, uh, perhaps talk a bit more in detail about some of these topics. But um, you you have intimated that um, mental health is an, an, an issue which is close to your heart. Um, do you want to talk a bit about that? Yeah, I, you know, I, I think that... Um as a society, it's it's a really big taboo subject. Um, I I don't think that even till today, even today, with all the with all the research that we have, with all the wonderful therapists and psychologists out there, they, it, it, not enough is being done to protect people's mental well-being. Um, and you know, if you think about a country like the UK, where you know where we're fighting for budgets to to sort of help um to help people it's a serious issue you know and it and it and it comes from um it's 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 environmental factors it's family factors it's all sorts of work factor all sorts of different things that impact your mental health but it's it's fundamental because if you're not healthy in the mind your body's not healthy um and you know we, we talk about at the nhs about you know the the strain on the nhs the strain on the nhs well you've got people need people need healthy minds in order to stay healthy and that would actually impact I'm, at least that's my opinion i'm not a doctor by the way so don't quote me on this but i personally think that a healthy mind is a healthy body and it means that it's a less of a burden on the nhs but we don't do enough to protect people with mental health problems we don't also help identify mental health problems quickly enough um and people aren't um, powered or um they don't have enough information available to them to understand that there may be a problem, like that you may you may know someone but not really have understood that they have mental health problems or, you know, or people who fear getting diagnosed with bipolar because or they're getting these these moods, but they don't understand what they are. And no one's there to kind of provide that information for them. Depression. Depression is a huge problem. It's a huge problem in um in young people, I've known people with depression, and it's it's completely it's it's changed the entire course of their life. Um, and it's really sad to see somebody with so much potential uh, lose lose hope, lose sight of um, of what their future could look like because they're so consumed and they they're struggling, and the system isn't able to support them because the system is dealing with too much. And you know, you really need. The right kind of and family sometimes doesn't know how to support you know they're not mm. they're not trained in this area absolutely not and sometimes it comes upon them in such an unexpected fashion that they are ill prepared to deal with it um yeah i think you are 
absolutely right in every way um i've read i don't know how many times reports about kids at school under pressure um that uh stress uh leads also to some of these more you know, severe elements that you have referred to and named um social media hasn't helped um in, in many ways it has accentuated the burden because you know if, if a child is unhappy at school because of the way he or she is being treated um in the old days it was only at school and then they went home and they were in that safe environment but with social media there is no safe environment you are always susceptible or vulnerable to you know to, to these potential um you know and damaging um you know i don't know uh, exchanges of terms or words uh, criticisms uh, curses and so on um mm -hmm. and it's uh, yeah I, i don't think that they have been creative enough in dealing with uh, you know the, the myriad of issues that uh, that kids face nowadays No, and and you know when I so when I was younger it was it was the magazine you know people said oh it's the magazines it's this and that and the other but you know it's also the fact that kids aren't being told or being helped they're not being supported enough you know I I would say that it's not necessarily the role of a social media company to to take care of that mental health um, the mental health of of that child it's not the celebrity's fault you know. The, the celebrity themselves wants to post photos of themselves. That, that's nothing new. Marilyn Monroe used to spend hours on end taking wonderful swimsuit shots of her. And my God, I mean, you know, I love looking at them. Um, it, it's, it's not really the role model or the company's fault or, you know, but it, it's a collective. It's a collect. I don't know how to explain this. It's a collective issue. Um, but it's also not helping teenagers adapt and understand the distinctions between what is reality, what isn't real, um, what is, you know, that there are, um, that these are the realities and this is, this is the fabricated life, you know, like um, nowadays on social media, I see this a lot now. So you get um, people, to, you know, people who do a lot of training or they're constantly taking photos of themselves um, working out. They'll take photos of themselves in different poses to help people realize that just because I look good in this pose, I don't, this isn't how I always look, or this is me after I've eaten. So that, because it, it plays on people's minds. Um, but children, children are bombarded. Um, there isn't enough controls. Parents don't have enough time to, to, to tell their kids anything. Um, and because they dealt with it, they think, oh, well, I came out of it all right. My kid's going to be okay, but you know what? Not every kid is good like their parent, um, mm. and this is another thing that parents all think that their kids are going to be like them. I'm sure you're your family, three boys, all of you very sort of macho-y alpha type males. Your father probably had a lot of expectations about the types of men that you were supposed <laughs> to be, and you're supposed to be like him. And maybe one of you didn't turn out like him, and he's like, "What a disappointment this kid is because he's nothing like me." Well, I don't recognize him. Yeah, that's me. I'm 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 not hairy at all, and um, <laughs> yeah. Sorry, Dad. <laughs> I'm going bald. I'm half your age. He's got so much more hair than me. It's unbelievable. Um, yeah, but uh, yeah, I, I think there are um, definitely there are these issues, and uh, there is also this uh, sort of fear from some kids. You know, the, the heightened expectations. So, you know, if the parent um, had achieved a certain uh, status in his or her life, then there is pressure because the child needs to achieve something similar. Or, but it's also the case vice versa, where you know, a parent didn't feel as though he or she achieved what they could have done. And there's added pressure on the child to, to, to succeed where they failed. So, I mean, there is no, I think, sort of set structure within a family which would dictate that kind of pressure. Well, so you've just hit the nail on the head. Like, the, this is fundamentally the, the problems, and I want to say, how you raise your kids, okay, and I'm not talking about, by the way, Let me just be clear. I'm not talking about the, um, the 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 mental health issues that come to, come out because of like chemical imbalances and so on that exist in in the body. I'm talking about like things that you're the the external factors that impact you and and the way that you see the world and and how it could lead you to um, depression. And by the way, everybody suffers from depression. It's just that some people are clinically depressed and others aren't. And some people know how to come out of it and others don't. So I think that these all things, these things need to, there's nothing wrong with being sad. And again, 
one shouldn't fear emotions or the feeling of sadness, the feeling of loss, the feeling of um, tiredness or happiness or whatever. You need to feel these things. But our generation, we're so we're so wired on being hedonistic, especially my my sort of generation. We were all hedonistic. We all want we want things. We want it now. We want we want the gratification. We want the pleasures and all of this stuff. But life isn't always like that. Um, and this is why a lot of people are struggling with COVID because you know we're not used to we're not used to struggling. Other countries are used to, like I'm saying we, as in the, the 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 sort of more developed nations, we haven't had to struggle for a very, very long time, not in the way that other countries have. So for us, this is a really big, it's a big shock. Um, but what was I saying? Um, your The way that your parents, as you say, I know people like this. I, I knew kids that, you know, their parents were constantly telling them they were special. They were better than everybody in their class. And they really believed it. They they. They started, they left high school unhappy in their place because they never felt that they were recognized for who they were. And they went to university expecting something different. They didn't find it. Some did, maybe. Then they went to the workplace expecting the exact same um, sort of scenario. And it didn't happen. And for some, they were told that they were, you know, they were the A students. They were the ones that, you know, the teachers adored and so on. But when they went into the workplace, they just weren't achieving. They they found themselves, um, they found themselves in a situation where it wasn't just about getting the best grades or being the best employee. There was other things like you had to be nice to your colleagues. You had to treat your colleagues with respect. But I wasn't graded on that. I wasn't told that I had to be nice <laughs> to my colleagues. And suddenly you're getting fired because you're not a very nice person. And you're... You know, and 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 they and people aren't satisfied. But you, there's a really good song which I adore, and um, I think it's um, it's I think it explains a lot in 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 its sort of short self, which is Bob Dylan's "Positively Forty uh, Second Street." It's a very very good um, song because the lyrics in itself just sort of describe describes sort of like this sort of misplaced. Um, expectations on an ind- of an individual i don't know if you know the song i've, I've not heard it no i'm i'm not um particularly i've never really known much about what david bowie did so i have um, uh, did i say did, no bob dylan sorry bob dylan sorry uh, both <gasps> neither, neither, neither one nor the other excuse me and um but yeah i i completely respect the fact that these were you know immensely talented and popular uh artists but uh yeah that they they sort of went well well past me i really recommend you listen to positively fourth street i um it's I'm a make, it's, i'm making a note positively and bob dylan you said yeah it's bob dylan positively fourth street it's a very i mean i recommend all of bob dylan's uh, music to be honest um but uh it's david bowie's funnily enough it's his um it would have been his birthday today oh okay that's right it's funny you brought him up yeah crazy that you know that but um okay well you're a fan i guess so therefore you would you know what no i was actually listening to the radio there's a live concert for him today so i and i was Uh. thinking I, I got kind of like this goosebumpy feeling because I thought, gosh, you know, there's a legend and they're trying to sort of remind, they're trying to get the younger generations um, into him so that his legacy lives on. I mean, you know, if you have um, decent parents, they'll teach it to you. <laughs> it didn't work out with me, but there you go. Um, yeah, I, you know, I, I, when I work with younger people and I, and I try to speak to them about some of the artists that I, you know, knew growing up and I talk about actors and so on and you know when I say the name Robert De Niro and they look back at me blankly then I, then I get really really down you know um, because it's <laughs> it's not just but it's not just an age thing you know I mean Al Pacino Robert De Niro I mean these guys were hugely talented you know um, and they're still alive they're still going you know uh, they still do three and a half hour movies for crying out loud 
Um, so anyway, that's a different matter. Okay, all right. Uh, Tatiana, it's brilliant. I'm so happy that in your extremely busy schedule, you were you were so you know um, uh, positive and um, how can I say enthusiastic about accepting accepting my invitation. I've got so many topics that I'd still love to talk with you about. Will you give me some more of your time at some point in the future, and we can talk about them? Always happy to. Um, I have a lot of respect for you, Sako. I think you're one of the. As I've said to you, I think. Um, I don't tell your brother. Well, we can I, tell your brother. You know, I always tell your brother I prefer you to him, but it's fine. No, I, <laughs> I'm going to have to I cut that out. <laughs> I equally admire both of you because you're both you're both wonderful people. But um, no, absolutely happy to. Brilliant. Okay, thank you very much. I'll have to work out whether or not I could keep that little bit in at the end. But uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't want to upset Armin. Um, it, <laughs> He, he, he will come back to me and say, all right, now I want to have a podcast and I'm going to talk about Tatiana, mate. And, um, and, and then we'll have a little battle on our hands. But uh, fair enough. I'll let you sort that out with him. Yeah, uh, I won't get involved. Brilliant. All right. Well, I hope you do manage to get back to London safely and everything uh, works itself out. If indeed you do decide to go back to London at any point over ah. the next few weeks. Um, but yeah, good luck with all of your projects. Yeah, And um, yeah, stay in touch and let me know how you get on. Thank you, and it's a pleasure talking to you. Wonderful for me too. Thank you very much. Take care, my dear. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.